what does it mean to be family? How did we deal with other deaths in our family? And, you know, there's so much legacy that can come out of these conversations. They're not always easy, but they don't also have to be morose. There can be actually laughter and fun. And I have a friend who told me, I'd already told my family, I want a chocolate fountain in the room while I'm dying with fondue for everyone. I want people coming in and telling me jokes. I mean, so there's great joy in her plan. Hello, and welcome to the Age Stage Podcast, where it is our mission to equip you with the resources to navigate life's challenges empower you to make critical choices with the ones you love as they age, and enrich your life with a renewed sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and peace of mind. I'm your host, Dr. Cheryl Matthew. I'm excited to bring this episode of Age Sage to you, Finding Life Through Loss with Arlene Stepitat. As a death doula, she brings us a life-changing perspective on caring for loved ones at the end of life. Arlene has helped many families experience greater joy and peace at the door of their loved one's death. With her guidance, you can apply a new approach to your situation right now. This shift in perspective has allowed her to assist people to move away from regret and toward peace of mind. I'm really happy you're joining us. I believe you'll be greatly encouraged by Arlene's counsel. We'll get rolling with the interview right after a word from one of our sponsors. Every passage in life has its ups and downs, decisions and transitions, a beginning and an end. I invite you to navigate life's journey like an age sage, fully living, learning, and loving. As we care for our aging loved ones, we also need to make time to care for ourselves. So this is our safe space to share challenges, wisdom, and joy along life's adventure. I'm your guide, Dr. Cheryl Matthew, and this is Age Sage. So I'd love to welcome today's guest, Arlene Stepitat. She holds a master's degree from Columbia University in family and community education and a master's in theology from Peace Theological Seminary. She also holds a certificate in applied spiritual psychology from the University of Santa Monica. She's an end-of-life practitioner and death doula and has worked in the field of death and dying for 12 years. She was also the program director for the Alzheimer's Association in Santa Barbara, California, and has been a volunteer manager in hospice care. Welcome, Arlene. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm excited to be here. So, Arlene, before we get started, I've got one opening question that I ask all the guests, and that is, what is your favorite place to vacation? Well, my favorite place to vacation is any place that I've never been before. I'm not a person that goes back a lot. I like to explore the new. So right now, Santa Fe's up on deck. I've never been there. So that's my new vacation spot that I'm going to explore next week. I love that. So you are a death doula. And I would love to talk more about that today. And I realize that a lot of people in our society have a negative view on death or their afraid of talking about death and dying. What I love about your perspective and and how we're similar is that we look at death and dying in a certain perspective that doesn't make it scary, but looks at the gift of death and dying and what that gives to the people who are living. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Tell me first, what is a death doula, and what services do you offer? 
So first, let me just say this. For those of you who have stuck with us this far, I'd like to, to quote my favorite line about death and dying, which is a Woody Allen phrase where he says, it's not that I'm afraid of death and dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, it's one of those things we know it's inevitable and we don't want to think about losing people we love. And so we pretend that it's not going to happen or it's only going to happen to other people, but not us. So that's not true. And the more we can open to that, it shifts the way we live each day in a very sweet way, I think. So in terms of what a death doula does, you know, in ancient times and forever, as long as humans have been on the planet, we have always known how to take care of each other. And as the medicalization and the innovation in medicine prolonged life and we could do things, death moved out of homes and bedsides to hospital rooms. And we're shifting back to reclaiming this transitional period in our life um, and bringing it back. And we're starting to see some changes. And so out of that, the death doula movement is emerging as a field. Now, some of you may have heard the term doula or midwife, kind of interchangeable, applied to birthing. And that's had its own resurgence, you know, in the last 30 years, that kind of thing. So this is a similar process. So there's really three major things that we do. Uh, We help with people before death is on the horizon, you know, healthy people that just want to look ahead and plan their advanced healthcare directives, like what would happen if, do I, how, what's the quality of life and death I want? And what would I want for a funeral? Some of that advanced planning, thinking about it as a gift to your loved ones. So that's one part. And then when people are in the transitional phase, when they're moving closer, I would say the last two weeks or so to the dying process, we are with the family, showing them ways to keep people comfortable, but much more being an active, loving presence to calm people down, to know the signs. Doulas are non-medical. Usually uh, there are some RNs that have become doulas, but doulas overall are not doing medical interventions. We're doing comfort and also bring in an element of ritual. And then finally, when the person leaves their body, there are some things we can uh, help the family do should they choose to say goodbye to their loved one, like anointing the body or bathing the body or that kind of thing, and then moving them into the final stage of saying goodbye. And then the very last thing we do is check in with families a couple of days and a few weeks after their loved one has passed to make sure that they can have the resources they need for their grieving process. So that's it. Three stages, beginning, during, and after. That's wonderful. And the other thing I know that you've done a lot of work with is help people with advanced directives, which we'll talk a little bit about later. So I can see that that's another separate step in addition to that process. I used to be a hospice social worker and people would ask me, how can you work in hospice? Isn't that so hard or sad? And my response is that I loved hospice social work because hospice is where people start living. It's not about quantity, it's about quality. So when people get a life-threatening 
diagnosis or their loved one may be ill. When people get a, a diagnosis, they start to get real and they stop putting things off like, well, I'll just do that next week. I'll do that when I retire. I'll do that someday. And they start doing things now. So I experience so much life. So that's one of the things that I love about hospice work. And for me, I, I bring that into my life now. And Arlene, you and I did a talk recently about this topic, about advanced directives and long-term care. And what I came up with was really three topics or three, three kind of bullet points about this. One is perspective, the second is plan, and the third is purpose. So having a new perspective, having a positive perspective about death, dying, doing advanced directives about life and death, and then we can plan. So we plan by doing advanced directives and then making sure we have purpose in our life. What made you get into this profession and stay in this profession for so long? Thank you for asking, and it's very personal. My first experience with death was when I was 11 years old, and my mom and I were waiting for my dad to pick us up from church, and he never came, and someone gave us a lift home, and I walked into a scene with ambulances and fire department and seemed like hundreds of people on my front lawn and learned that my father had died of a heart attack. So I'm an only child and people did not know how to deal with children. Uh, my father also died five days before my 12th birthday and right before Christmas. So I got a lot of pity, but not a lot of support. And so there was that experience, which anybody that's lost a parent can tell you it's a marker in your life. So that was my first experience. And then in my early life, I had a friend who was murdered. I had somebody killed in a car crash. And my experiences with death were not the chance to say goodbye, but that, you know, they're here, they're gone. They're here, they're gone. And I got to the place, and I also am I'm from the East Coast, and I was working with runaway kids and got involved during the AIDS epidemic in New York City. And I realized that all these experiences were there to teach me and that I was to befriend death and understand it. It was inevitable. So it's kind of been a lifelong lesson. And when I moved to California, I started working with the Alzheimer's Association. And, you know, to your point about people living not only are people getting busy about completing things that they've always wanted to do or done that trip, and I've watched people do a lot of that, they also make peace often. And there is an extraordinary privilege in being with people at the most tender point of their lives. You know, we, we talk a lot about the matter of life and death, and this is a matter of life and death together. And for me, staying in the work, it's a sacred honor to be able to journey with an individual and a family to make that transition as smooth and as loving and as healing as possible. So for me, it's a blessing to be able to do this work um, and that's kind of my perspective about why it's like, this is the, one of the most precious moments 
in anyone's experience. And how blessed am I to be a part of that in any way I can be? I totally agree. And usually with hospice, when someone comes into that part of their life, the people around them are just a handful of people. Their circle of friends and people who visit get really small. And to be allowed into that space with that person and that family is uh, just a, a wonderful privilege. And we talk about how death and death doula is similar to you know, a birthing doula and that we have these two times in life, a birth and a death, that I believe we're very close to spirit. Like have one foot here in this world and one foot in wherever we're going, wherever that person's belief is that we're going. What perspective do you have, Arlene, as far as how being a death doula can really assist someone in reclaiming and having having power and control over their own death? One is that, that I meet people and I don't have a lot of emotional investment or history like a daughter or a son would be. I, I don't have an agenda for a patient when I meet them. And of course, you know, hospice is kind of you meet people where they are. And so we come in meeting the person and really being able to listen to what it is they're saying and also assisting them with things that they might not quite be able to say. And um, like anything, when you have someone that's had this experience and gone through it, I mean, for a lot of people whose loved ones on hospice, they may, may never have watched someone go through a terminal illness such that they're going to end up dying. So they don't know even like what happens to the body as someone is slowing down. So a doula can be a calming presence, an informational presence, and sort of a, a mediator to help people have conversations or healing or reminisce and have some joyful things as well. Like, what is it that you really want to do before you go? How could we make a dream come true? Well, yeah, you probably still are healthy enough to do a one-time visit to the beach and have a picnic with, like you always did with your family. So I think a doula brings possibilities, presence, and just a loving neutrality that can be the calm in an emotional storm because it, a lot of things surface when people are facing death. Right. Well, I've had, when you're talking, I have so many ideas and, and stories in my mind of work that I've done. And you know, one of the reasons I got into this work, and I've been working with older people and their families now for, you know, over 20 years. But even before that, in my mid-20s, when I knew nothing about cancer and death, and I just hadn't been around it, one of my grandmas got cancer, and the doctor kept wanting to give more chemo. And my grandpa eventually couldn't care for her at home. And so they brought her into the hospital, and the doctor saying, more chemo, more chemo. And my mother apparently knew about hospice and she was saying, well, what about hospice? And the doctor didn't want to do that because, you know, some doctors still have a hard time with hospice because doctors want to heal people. So, you know, we're shifting the conversation and, and the perspective with healthcare too, as far as what does this person want and, and need? So eventually the, the doctor said, well, if you want to do that, you can, and I will prescribe hospice. Like it was sort of like, it kind of left us feeling like, well, 
it, it wasn't what he was suggesting, but if we wanted her to die, okay. So it was really interesting because the hospice room was right next to my grandma's room. It said hospice on the door, but they couldn't talk to us until he prescribed hospice. So he prescribes hospice. And I remember before that, I was just trusting him because I knew nothing. As soon as hospice came in, they looked at my grandma and they said, oh, this is what's happening. She's, you know, this is what's happening to her vital signs and her blood pressure. And this, she has about three days to live. And it was such a wake up call that, and I looked at my grandma, I was like, this happens every day. People die every day. This is knowable. So I felt a new level of inspiration and I had choices about what I did for the next three days. So I, we, she ended up to be in the hospital for the next three days and she ended up passing away there. You know, I let her friends know if they wanted to visit, you know, we were playing music. We created this really sacred space and could have conversations with her that, you know, if you think if I never saw someone again, what would I say? So we had that time to do that. And that was really the light bulb for me of like, wow, people need to know about this. And when we have help and a doula and information that the family can be really well prepared for things that when people pass away, those are, those are memories that stick with people forever, the decisions we made and the choices. So if we have the help through that passage, we will have more positive memories for the rest of our life. I think more and more people are understanding that they have more rights. I know my mother would never have gone against anything her doctor told her. I mean, the doctor was God and you just did what they said. Younger generations are more savvy and are being more proactive. And but what I watch is people waiting too late to get on hospice. And I'm sure you saw this as a social worker too. Three days, I'm glad you had that. It's unfortunate your mom had to be proactive about it. Doctors do still feel like that it's a failure if someone's going to die, even when the handwriting's on the wall and the interventions. There's a time when interventions have to stop. You know, people should know, your listeners should know that you're eligible for hospice if your physician thinks that you might not be here in six months. That's kind of the criterion to get on a medical hospice. That being said, and I'm sure you had this experience too, I know people that were on hospice for two, two and a half years, and part of it is they have an increased quality of life, uh, they have more support and attention, and they can do a lot of completion so that when death finally comes, it's a much more peaceful, managed death, and there's a lot more healing. Um, and I think while hospice isn't about cure any longer, certainly healing can always occur. And I think that's important. So hospice is a service and it's, what's nice is it's paid for right now anyway, 100% by Medicare. And it sends a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain if people want it, volunteers, home health aid to the home or to the assisted living, wherever the person is living, and provides a real support for them. And so many times I saw people get better. Did they? They weren't cured, but they got better. They, their quality of life was better. I saw them feeling better when hospice started. And yes, you can even graduate from hospice. 
Yeah, the other piece that I think people misunderstand about hospice, in my experience, is that if you don't like it, or if there's some miracle cure or new treatment that comes on or a clinical trial or something you want to give a shot, you can get off hospice and that get on later on. So it's not like, oh, once I go on hospice, I'm stuck. You, you know, it's all patient driven in terms of being on and not. And yeah, there, I've seen a lot of people, as you said, uh, the medications get adjusted. There's a little more attention. Maybe the caregivers learn some fine tuning about caregiving. And yeah, the person does improve and either graduates or even though the prognosis seemed to be six months, well, here they are a year and a half later and they're doing pretty good but they're, they're still slowly declining. You know, they're moving in that direction. And the last thing I just want to say, because I see this a lot with the confusion about the word hospice, it is both a benefit of Medicare or possibly your life insurance if you're under 65, but it is also a place you may go. So some people thought, I thought hospice was a, a house that you went to live in. Well, that can be, there are residential hospices as well, but that's an aspect of the hospice service. So I just, just think people need to know. And the other thing is the beauty of that word, hospice comes out of ancient tradition and it comes from the root word of hospitality and welcoming and caring for. So again, we go back to the ancient roots of all of this stuff. It was us caring for each other in the 13, 1400s. You know, uh, monks used to set up their little monasteries as way stations for travelers. And that was a piece of it, you know, so it's, it's all in the care. I mean, if people understand, it's not giving up hope, it's embracing a wider team of people that care for you, and listen to what your wishes are, uh, then I think it goes a lot easier. Yeah, I love that. Let me just say into your other P, I think that Hospice in an odd way can give you purpose in terms of how you use the last days of your life, whatever that would be. So it can be a great blessing. It can be fulfilling that final thing. Um, there's a, a national organization called the Dream Foundation, akin to Make-A-Wish, uh, which is a um, wish granting for children with terminal illness. Well, the Dream Foundation started here in Santa Barbara, but it's a national program because there was a man who, whose partner had a wish and nobody could grant it because he was an adult. And they thought, well, that's dumb. Why don't adults get to have their final wishes? And so that's a, a thing we often do. Um, I know um, I worked with a family and the man actually had won an Academy Award for uh, working on the original Star Wars. And he also was a phenomenal photographer one of his wishes was to have an art show with his work in his assisted living area. Like they had a gallery, but he couldn't, he was too weak to mount the pictures and all of that. But that was one of his wishes. And then his other wish was to go back to Yosemite with his wife where they had honeymooned and take a few more photos. And so the hospice team was able to execute both of those wishes for that gentleman. And I went to his art opening and I mean, this guy was so lit up and so proud and, and, oh yes, he had his Oscar out as well, which is probably as close to an Oscar as I'm ever going to get. But it was just such a celebration of 
his talent and his life and everybody came out and marveled. And so he felt like, yeah, I, I have a legacy I've left behind and I can still share my creativity before, you know, before I go, here's some new, new prints I've taken, here's some new photos share with me. And it was amazing. And none of that. And his wife said after he passed, none of it would have happened if they hadn't gotten on hospice and gotten on early enough for him to fulfill some of these things. So the role of the death doula or assisting people at the end of their life has often been played by a pastor or rabbi in the past. How does your role complement those roles? Doulas are willing to help families create meaningful rituals. And you know, uh, people, clergy from traditional religions have some of the rituals that they do, like um, last rites or those kinds of things, or, or praying or offering communion. And while doulas won't usurp any of those rules, doulas can create sacred space for people. And we actually help people in the planning stages, like what would you like if you are in your last couple of days, what's the environment that you would like? And so I'd say doulas complement by helping create a sacred space for people to have their final days, whether it's special music or they want flowers or they want photos. And to the degree that people want it, like I personally am also a hospice chaplain and a minister, so I, I can offer those kinds of things. One thing that doulas do, and some hospices do this as well, but I don't know of clergy that do this, which is um, an anointing or a blessing of the body after the person has left their body to just kind of invite the family to put oil on. And, and there's a kind of a little prayer that, or almost a gratitude of this sacred vessel that is no longer of use, but it has served a purpose and those kinds of things are very touching and involve the family, bathing the body. Those are things that chaplains and rabbis don't usually do, but certainly they can be there while that's happening. So Arlene, you've given a lot of talks about advanced directives, what they are, why they're important to fill out. I would love you to talk a little bit about that and the importance of people filling them out and what they are. So an advanced healthcare directive is actually you making decisions for yourself about the kinds of medical interventions you would like or not like, and you put it in writing and you designate a healthcare agent, someone who you specifically designate in writing, who will help make these decisions when you are at a place where you couldn't make them for yourself. So for instance, I have a stroke and I'm now in a coma. Do I want to have a feeding tube to help me? Do I want to be in a ventilator? I have a heart attack. Do I want full CPR? You know, those kinds of medical decisions. Now, if I'm cognizant, I can tell people what I want. But we're talking about the unexpected things that happen where someone else has to step in and make the decision for you. And it's uh, there's a number of different forms, and you can get them from your doctor or your local hospital. And it's designed to help everybody be clear about your wishes. 
So one is about CPR and whether you want it or not want it. And then another is about being intubated and feeding tubes. So it's it's those kinds of things. And it speaks first to what do you say today is a quality of life and what would you want? So I might not want to be kept alive if I'm going to be kept alive on a machine and I'm brain dead. I don't want that. That's not a quality of life I want. I need to say that because I can't assume that my husband would not want to just keep my body alive because it would be too hard to let let me go. But part of the, there's one form called the five wishes. And so while the first couple are these medical decisions, decisions four and five are about what you want people to know, your legacy, things that are important, how you want to be treated if you uh, maybe couldn't speak for yourself. And then the last one is, what would you like your memorial service or your funeral arrangements to be? Do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? Now there's so many different options coming forward about that. The whole funeral industry is changing. And so it's actually a gift you give to your loved ones to say, this is what I would want. And then they don't have to struggle And there's been some very famous arguments um, and cases where uh, there was a woman named Terry Schiavo, and she was in her 50s and had a drug interaction that put her in an induced coma where she was in a vegetative state and she was on a respirator. And her husband said, my wife would not want to live like this. She does not want her. We don't want her life to pull her off the ventilator. And her parents said, no, this is our daughter and we are not going to do that. And it became it was in Florida, it became national news because who gets to decide what Terry would have wanted? And ultimately they did let her go. So out of these kinds of famous cases, the encouragement is make these decisions for yourself and and have the conversations with your family. The other thing that I always advocate is, is you know, people think that the only people that should do this are people that are on Medicare 65, 70. Oh, well, when death is lurking, you know, oh, you're 85, maybe it's time for you to make some plans. But we all know, and we've all seen, whether it's with the tragedies of shootings that have happened in our country or disasters that that occur where people are seriously injured, we never hear that, but somebody might be in a coma and the family is trying to decide what would they want. An advanced healthcare directive does two really important things. One is it states your wishes for yourself in case you couldn't make them. But more importantly, it opens the dialogue for you and your loved ones to talk about death and dying and the inevitable and what that means and what quality of life is and allows you to start to acknowledge that death is a presence in life. Like none of us are getting out of here without it. And so instead of putting it in the back corner and saying, I don't want to talk about it, there's a great loving gift in having those conversations. And so that's why I really encourage everyone, if you are over the age of 18, you should get an advanced healthcare directive and you don't need a lawyer It doesn't cost you anything. It's some time, some decisions, and getting two witnesses to sign on. That's all it requires, and it's a legal document. One of our favorite, I think, resources for advanced directives is 
what's called the five wishes, uh-huh. which is a great form because it's not just some blanks. It actually guides you through some questions that you can dialogue with, with your loved ones and can really open up some conversations that would maybe challenging to have without it. And, you know, it's a great opportunity to just share family history and, and talk about loving and talk about really deep, meaningful things. What does it mean to be family? And how will it be? And how did we deal with other deaths in our family? And, you know, there's so much legacy that can come out of these conversations. They're not always easy, but they don't also have to be morose. There can be actually laughter and fun and, you know, especially around the planning party. I have a friend who told me, I'd already told my family, I want a chocolate fountain in the room while I'm dying with fondue for everyone. I want people coming in and telling me jokes. I mean, so there's great joy in her plan, you know. That's awesome. I love the vision of the chocolate fountain. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you take care of yourself? as someone in the helping profession? Uh, Well, that is a really key element. I had to learn it because years ago when I was working, not with death and dying, but some other heavy-duty populations, it's so easy when there's such a need to ignore your own needs and put the person you're caring for first. But what I have learned is uh, to seek balance, to realize I cannot fix what's going on It's my job to accept what's happening and support as best as I can in my loving. I can't change family dynamics for people. I can reflect, I can encourage, but I can't make it be a different way. So letting go of my ego, but at the same time, doing things that nurture me and making sure I have time. For me, I have a spiritual practice that nourishes me, so having my quiet time. I'm very connected to nature. I like to walk on the beach. One of the things we're seeing in the healthcare industry that's very, some simple things people can do is this whole idea of mindfulness, like just taking a moment to see where your breath is. Are you holding, you know, to just kind of internally check in with yourself, your mind, your heart. I mean, it can take you 60 seconds to just realign and see where you're at. Um, So, It's really, really critical for any caregiver, whether you're a family caregiver taking care of a loved one or you're a professional caregiver, because if you don't take care of yourself and you carry pain, you will behave differently. And one of my favorite one-liners is by um, a priest, actually, Richard Rohr, and he says, pain that is not transformed is transmitted. And so it's very important as caregivers to see what pain am I carrying and how can I work with it so that it doesn't come out and spill over on other people. And that's really been a key to me in a big way. Mm -hmm. I think the other tip as a caregiver is to learn to ask, to learn to receive from others that want to help you. And to learn to delegate. I mean, so often there are people waiting in the wings that are just waiting for you to say, could you do the laundry? Could you run to Trader Joe's and pick up some groceries? But we get into this thing that we have to do it all ourselves or we don't want to burden them or we don't know how to accept other people's support. So I think for for anybody doing any kind of caregiving, 
that's really important. Um, learn how to receive. As you're so busy giving, also refill your own cup and realize you're not in it on your own. Right. The receiving and receiving love and receiving care is, especially for caregiver types or helping professionals, they seem to have a real challenge around receiving. And sometimes it's the person we're helping, the older person that we're helping is also going through that. They're not used to receiving, they're used to giving. And now they may be frail or not able to do some of the things they used to. And so it's a lesson for them too, to receive support from around them. Yeah, it is. And I think there's a subtlety to it because when I'm giving, I can be quote unquote in control. When I'm receiving, it's not so much. I think I'm in a more vulnerable position when I allow myself to receive or at least perceive that way. But the real way to do this work is to do it from a heart of service. And then you're in a kind of giving and receiving because you know from being in this work, the blessings and the, the moments of connection fill my cup and it gives me energy to keep doing it. So it's like, it's hard to know who's giving or receiving more. We're just kind of in this service point of like loving communion that just energizes both parties. Right, for sure. So, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of ground today. We've talked about hospice and what's a death doula and advanced directives. And we've talked about perspective, planning, and purpose. And when we can use death and dying or, or mortality to teach us to live, that's really where the magic is for me. And when I focus on what's meaningful and what matters and my purpose, and when I when I, at the end of the day, when I think, well, if I, if I die tonight, I ask myself the questions about my purpose. Did I love and did I serve? And if I get yeses to those, I go to bed feeling really good. So if, if I don't have tomorrow, I'm in a good space. When we choose the perspective of befriending death and planning for what might happen to our physical body and our stuff through advanced directives or trusts and wills, then we're free to live fully and be present and with purpose. So Arlene, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I hope that listeners can get a new perspective on, on death, dying, and how to embrace death so they can fully live. I'd love you to share any resources or services that you offer. Thank you. So I'm based here in Santa Barbara. And first, I want to say at this stage of my life, my services are free. So there's no cost. And people can go to my website, which is dyingingrace.com. And there there's information about death doulas. And there's also about 40 different 20 minute shows about aspects of death and dying where I've interviewed people like a funeral planner or somebody that handles elder care abuse or a neuropsychologist dealing with dementia. So if you're curious, if we touched on something, please take a look at the website, dyingingrace.com or go to YouTube, Dying in Grace. I am happy to advise people. Uh, They can send me an email and I promise I'll get back to you. Uh, There's a lot of resources around. And I just want to name three. So for Alzheimer's, anything about that, the website is very simple. It's alz.org. 
And that can lead you to a lot of different tips. For uh, understanding hospice and getting resources and questions, it's nhpco.org. And that is the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, nhpco.org. And that has national resources, again, all free. And lastly, if you wanted to learn more about an advanced healthcare directive and get one or download a copy, you can go to agingwithdignity.org, that website, and you can learn about that. So that kind of covers all the specters we've talked about, um, including there's aspects about caregiving on all of those sites. So if you started there, or contact me, and I'm happy to be of service and, and teach people how to love and care for the people they know that are facing death, which is all of us. <laughs> all of us. Noah, it's the great equalizer. It truly is. All right, Arlene, thank you so much, and thank you for all the work that you do. Well, Cheryl, I want to thank you for uh, this podcast and all the work that you do in your work. And I hope the listeners will continue to listen because I know that you are going to have an incredible lineup of important information that we all need to learn. I know I'll be listening. So thank you for inviting me. It's been my honor. Thanks, Arlene. Take care. Thank you for joining us. At AgeSage, our aim is to equip you with resources to navigate life's challenges, empower you to make critical choices with your aging loved ones, and enrich your life with a renewed sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and peace of mind. I want to take a moment to ask you to rate, review, and recommend this podcast. AgeSage is a new podcast that we created just for you, but no one will know about it if our listeners don't spread the word. So please take a moment now to review it and share it with friends whom you know would benefit from it. If you have a burning question that you would like me to answer on the show, please head over to agesage.co and leave me a voicemail. There you will also find detailed show notes for each episode, and you can download my free ebook, Advocating for Aging Loved Ones. Once again, that's agesage.co, A-G-E-S-A-G-E dot C-O. This is Dr. Cheryl Matthew, and I want to thank you again for joining us today. I look forward to sharing this journey with you.